Hey there, welcome to LiveWire. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. This week on the show, we are talking to John Darneal, maybe best known as the lead singer of the band The Mountain Goats, but it turns out he is also a very talented novelist, a New York Times bestseller at that. We're going to talk about his new book, Devil House, and his complicated relationship with the true crime genre which Devil House is uh, set in. Then we are going to talk with the rapper, writer, and podcaster Dessa, who's going to tell us about the challenges of heading back out on tour after a global pandemic, which you may have been hearing something about over the last two years, and also how she channels her passion for behavioral science into her podcast, which is called Deeply Human. We've got a deeply interesting show for you this week, so don't go anywhere. It all gets started right after this. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of LiveWire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, and then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Hey, Elena. Hey, Luke. How's it going? It's going good. I'm trying to stay dry. Here in Portland, we're under what they're calling an atmospheric river of rain. The river is flowing down here, too, I think. (laughs) I didn't know how wet rivers were, but it's (laughs) very, very wet here. Thankfully, it's nice and dry here inside the studio, and we are ready to play some station location identification examination. Are you ready? I'm so ready. Okay, this is where I tell you about a place where Livewire is on the radio. You try to guess the place that I'm talking about. All right, here is your clue. This town is depicted in the Truman Capote book, In Cold Blood. It's where the trial was related to the crime. Uh, well, I know the crime was in Holcomb, Kansas, but was the trial somewhere else? It was in nearby Garden City, Kansas, ah! where we are on the radio on KANZ FM2. So a shout out to everyone tuning in in Kansas, particularly on K-A-N-Z. They're in Garden City. All right. Shall we get to it with our little radio show, Elena? Let's do it. All right. Take it away. From PRX, it's Livewire. This week, author and musician John Darneal of the Mountain Goats. One of the things the book is about is myth-making. And the nature of of the stories we hold is true. And rapper and podcast host, Dessa. You acclimate to outrageous conditions by virtue of the fact that you don't have the metabolic energy to maintain rage. (laughs) But you do at 13. (laughs) 
I'm your announcer, Elena Passarello. And now, the host of Livewire, Luke Burbank. Hey, thank you so much, Elena Passarello. Thank you to everyone tuning in all across the country, including in Garden City, Kansas. Of course, each week, we like to ask the Livewire listeners a question this week, in honor of a couple of our guests who are just talented in like multiple different disciplines, uh, we asked a lot of our listeners, what expertise would most people be surprised to find out that you have? We're going to be hearing those answers coming up in a bit. First, though, of course, we've got to kick things off with the best news we heard all week. This is our little weekly reminder that they're still are some good things happening out there in the world, especially on a week like this. There's a lot of not great things. Figured it was worth taking a moment to remember some of the positivity that is occurring. Elena, what is the best news that you heard about this week? Well, I know we're in March now, but just a few days ago, we were in February, and it was a very special February because it involved February 22nd, 2022. Mm -hmm. It's just like a special occasion of luck and time, I suppose. And a lot of people were paying attention to it in different ways. But this is my favorite way in which (laughs) 2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2 was celebrated. It was celebrated in Burlington, North Carolina by Amberly Spear and her husband because at 2.22 a.m. on 2.22-2022 in delivery number two, Amberly gave birth to a child. Yay! Wow. Did they put Amberly in delivery room number two because they saw this coming, I wonder? Or was that just yet another coincidence? Well, the article I read in People Magazine made it sound like chance. <laughs> and it also sounds just amazing because the little baby, there's been, there was a picture of her. She's a gorgeous little peanut. Her name is Judah Grace. Cute. And the probability that somebody would be born with straight deuces all the way down like that. I mean, it's just, it's just, she's, she's already coming into the world full of this incredible luck. It's auspicious. Yeah. And also if I had a baby at 2.22 AM on 2.22, I would probably find a way to work that into the name of the baby. Judah Grace, I think they had their own much more sensible reasons. Right. They probably picked that before they knew about the numeric implications of when the baby was born. But what would you call him, like Tutu? Or like El Segundo. (laughs) (laughs) Is that what El Segundo means? I used to live near El Segundo. Segundo means second, I think. Ah, the second. I just like the I like the the middle name Grace because that's actually my daughter's middle name. I have that tattooed on my arm. I know way too much of the show the last couple of weeks has been about various tattoos of mine, but I'm just saying Grace is a solid middle name as well. So I like the idea that people who have never seen you before probably imagine you're just covered in like boss sleeves and like you're all like Henry Rollins all the way up to the neck. <laughs> I'm not, but it's I have to say it's getting closer to that than I really intended. I just Looked it up the other day. I was like, it's kind of a lot for a public radio host. But anyway. (laughs) Hey, speaking of adorable things, like little Judah Grace, there is an adorably chunky bear in the (laughs) Lake Tahoe area of California named Hank the Tank. Okay. He is described by authorities as a severely food-habituated 500-plus-pound black bear. Okay. That has been... (laughs) marauding in a particular gated community called the Tahoe Keys community there in 
in Tahoe, California. Now, he hasn't injured anyone, but he's just broken into a lot of places and <laughs> scarfed a lot of food and made a lot of mischief. Okay. And so because of the just amount of bear-related hijinks that Hank the Tank had gotten <laughs> up to... What are we talking about here? Like just a couple of trash cans or? Oh, no, we're talking about, let's see, I got the exact number here. 152 reports of conflict behavior. Whoa. It's a busy bear. (laughs) So it was announced on the internet that Hank the Tank was sort of under a a shoot to kill order. They were going to euthanize him. (gasps) And this really rallied the chonky bear community on the internet. (laughs) who is not pleased at this. And if you see a picture of Hank, you'll just understand immediately. It looks like someone Photoshopped this bear. Just the fact that they haven't caught him yet (laughs) is remarkable to me. Not a subtle bear. But anyway, the news that Hank the Tank was was, uh, under danger of being euthanized set the internet off. There was a change.org petition. People started calling the South Lake Tahoe Police Department so much that they had to put out a statement asking people to please stop calling us about Hank the Tank. They're like, number one, it's not even our thing. It's actually the California Department of Fish and Wildlife. God, no. But this is the best news that I heard this week, Elena. They have done some DNA testing now at a variety of these locations where there were these reports of conflict behavior. Okay. And they have determined that Hank the Tank did not work alone that there were at least, as of right now, two other bears. There's the <gasps> DNA present of two other bears. Because Hank the Tank is, is not the sole perpetrator of these like property crimes, the uh, Department of Fish and Wildlife has announced that they have taken him off of the list of bears that will be euthanized. You. And when they can find him, and again, amazingly, <laughs> they still have not located Hank the Tank. When they find him, they will just sort of tranquilize him if need be or corral him into something. I say you just throw a couple of like Klondike bars or something into the cage. I feel like he's going to go for it. Mm -hmm. And they're just going to relocate him somewhere else. But they're not going to kill Hank the Tank anymore. Hooray! And that is the best news that I heard all week on a week where we can really use some best news. Amen. Hey, if you'd like to get even more of the best news in your life, we now have an entire podcast dedicated to an expanded version of the best news segment. It comes out on Wednesdays, and you can find it wherever you get your podcasts in the Livewire podcast feed. Okay, let's welcome our first guest on over to the show. He's the founder and frontman of the band The Mountain Goats, who are, uh, for those of you who might not know, an indie folk band. They've released 20 studio albums going back to the early 90s. But he is also, it turns out, a New York Times bestselling author of three novels. The L.A. Times calls him a master at building suspense. Uh, His latest novel, Devil House, came out in January. And uh, I had a chance to sit down with John at Town Hall in Seattle to talk about this book. Take a listen. Uh, For folks who haven't had a chance to read the book yet, can you kind of lay out as much of the plot of Devil House as, as you feel comfortable with, or at least what's the arc of this, this book? It is uh, about a true crime author named Gage Chandler who has a, a method that involves inhabiting the property where the crime happened, right? And sort of, uh, it, it's like method acting where he, he, he scopes out the place and gets inside. 
and uh, his agent calls him and says, hey, there's a, a place where some crimes happen that's actually going for sale. It's in this little town called Milpitas, south of San Francisco. Um, so you go move in. So he does. The book is structured, it has a mirror structure. So parts one and seven involve that story. Parts two and six involve his first book, uh, The White Witch of Morro Bay. And uh, parts three and five are regard the book he's working on. And then part four is this separate freestanding thing about, uh, about castle doctrine. Yeah, part four is a real doozy. I guess that would be Middle English. What, what's well, the... I mean, it's 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 not real Middle English. Uh, it's uh, I do I do a pretty convincing Middle English. It, I was convinced reading it. So the book is going along kind of with sort of as one kind of prose, and then everything changes somewhere in the middle. The font, the yeah. style of 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 writing. I mean, it's why did you choose to do that? Um, well, it, it, it has to do with some of the final reveals and with some plot points that I don't want to bear into, but one of the things the book is about is myth-making, right? And the nature of, of the stories we hold as true. And while I was studying it and studying this Castle Doctrine, which is this law that's, that's often used by NRA types to justify shooting people who are on their property, but it's a very old law uh, that that begins by saying, if you are in fact in the king's castle, the king can do whatever he likes to you, it's his castle, right? And so I started studying this stuff and discovered that the castle is actually a Norman import into England, right? But when I talk to you about King Arthur, you know King Arthur has to precede the Norman invasion. We know the stuff that happened after 1066, and we know that Arthur wasn't there. But if the castle comes with the French, where did Arthur live? Where were the Knights of the Round Table? They didn't have a castle, right? It's so, a very Mandela effect yeah, but, sort of moment, right? But they did have a castle because you can see that castle. It's I, called I can Camelot, it right, now. right? And so I'm really into that, right? That's that's kind of a, a vortex for me. And in the case of of the house that Gage moves into, it was a castle for some people who lived there, right? Who had to defend it against interlopers at one point. And so so all that stuff is sort of addressed in a sort of um, condensed way in the in the middle section. This is Livewire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. We are listening to a conversation that I had with the writer and musician John Darneal from the Mountain Goats, talking about his new book, Devil House. Uh, We have to take a quick break, but don't go anywhere. We will be right back. Vacations, weddings, birthdays, and reunions. Oh my, there's so much going on. Get the most out of your spring plans by stocking up on pre-alcohol now. ZBiotic's pre-alcohol probiotic drink is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic. It was invented by PhD scientists to tackle rough mornings after drinking. Here's how it works. When you drink, alcohol gets converted into a toxic byproduct in the gut. It's this byproduct, not dehydration, that's to blame for your rough next day. ZBiotic's produces an enzyme to break this byproduct down. Just remember to make Zbiotics your first drink of the night, drink responsibly, and you'll feel your best tomorrow. Go to zbiotics.com slash livewire to get 15% off your first order when you use livewire at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with 100% money-back guarantee, so if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember to head to zbiotics.com slash livewire and use the code livewire at checkout for 15% off. Thank you to Zbiotics for sponsoring this episode and our good times. Welcome back to LiveWire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. Uh, we are listening to a conversation that I had with John Darneal from the Mountain Goats 
at Town Hall in Seattle earlier this month talking about his new novel, Devil House. Uh, I'm curious about what your relationship was with true crime before you started writing this book. I think uh, Kirkus uh, called the, this book an impressively meta work that delivers the pleasure of true crime while skewering it, which I, I think is an accurate description of what goes on in the book. Uh, was that something that you spent much time with uh, before you started on this project? Well, I, I have a, I have I have gothic bones, so so it is the the mission, not the mission, the duty of the young goth to indulge some true crime, you know. And uh, and but the thing is, when I was in my gothic days, which continue to this day, uh, uh, but in my more visibly gothic it's days... It's a state of mind. It doesn't yeah, have to be externalized yeah, with yeah, the no, outfit. That's right. You, you, you carry your, your goth with you. But, I mean, this is sort of what the book is about to some extent, or part of what it's about. is like when, when you're 18, 17, 18, 19 years old, um, you know, you hear about a serial killer named uh, Peter Curtin, the vampire of Dusseldorf, who asked his executioner if he'd be able to hear his blood rushing out of his neck for even a moment after he was beheaded, because to him that would be the greatest thing, right? You hear about this, you go, oh, I gotta know more about this guy, you know? And, uh, and as you grow, and especially if you become a parent, you start to think more about who these people killed, and, and w- yeah. what were they to those people, you know? And, uh, and it becomes a much more complicated question, but young goths, you know, tend to, they get excited that John Wayne Gacy paints clowns, you know? And uh, there's a band, everybody loves this band, Joy Division, right? Joy Division is named after the uh, prostitution wing of a concentration camp. That's not funny, right? That's not a cool band name, actually. That's a really thing to name your band, right? But in the late 70s, in the punk era, it was kind of you were trying to do something shocking. and, And if it was shocking and obscure, it was even better, right? But it is one of those things where you, you know... You reflect and you go, what what effect does it have on people to be just sort of giving a pass to stuff like that over time? I think it has a deleterious effect, you know. But at the same time, I, I don't like to land on, and then you shouldn't be into it, you know. It doesn't, it doesn't do anything for me. Um, it does make you think, though, as the reader, about sort of, there's a big fascination these days with true crime. And I think it's a little different than the John Wayne Gacy stuff. I mean, I just saw a New Yorker cartoon this week where someone is going up to a DJ at a packed rave and asking them, do you have any true crime podcasts you can play? <laughs> That's, That's where we're at as a society. Like, we have a... There, you're right. There was the sort of goth fascination with the macabre. Now it's just moms... Who but, are coming home from Pilates listening to my favorite murderer. But that's who was going to Grand Guignol um, stuff in Paris. You know the Grand Guignol? No. Um, so where we get splatter movies from basically starts in 19th century Paris at a theater called the Grand Guignol where they did uh, these plays and the playwrights were sort of these young proto-decadent guys drinking absinthe and, uh, and being into Baudelaire and, and stuff like that. And the plays were very bloody. Like uh, people would pass out at the theater watching them. And this was like 19th century stagecraft stuff and 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 they were all like a lot of them were derived from uh from roman tragedy which is very different from greek tragedy um it's all the same basic stories but roman tragedy is gnarly and that stuff uh sort of is is the proto proto true crime thing i think it's like this because they were often presented and the same thing happens in pre Hayes code um mysteries and horror stuff they were presented as moral lessons like i'm showing you this in case you ever meet up with a guy who offers you soup and you don't know what's in it right <laughs> and and that's a pose right that's a that's a pose it's like no you're not you're showing me this cuz you think it's bitchin right <laughs> 
Um, did you have a hunch you were going to be good at writing novels? And I ask because you have written a ton of music. I don't know that I am either. Well, I, I, they've, they've all sold a lot and been well-reviewed, and there's a bunch of people here uh, who've read the uh, previous novels. I just, I wonder about that because, you know, you've had a lot of success with music, but this is a sort of different thing. And, I mean, particularly with your first novel, I don't mean the 33 and a third book, which is great, but I mean yeah. with the novel novel. Were you just kind of like, I hope I'm good at this? Yeah, well, a couple of things. It was like after I did the 33 and a third, that's when my agent um, made contact and said, I thought this was really good. If you ever work on anything else, if you want somebody to represent you, give me a holler. And, and I said, well, I actually did start working on something while I was waiting. This is how I work. Like when I'm waiting to get the edit back on whatever I just wrote, I start writing something else just to keep busy. And, uh, and so I had done that with what became the first six chapters, well, the original very different draft of Wolf and White Van. And then I just sort of let it sit because I was busy. I had other stuff to do, you know. And a few years later, he, um, he said, hey, if you have anything, you know, I'd love to show it around. I sent him six chapters, and, and he said, you know, I can absolutely sell this. So he, so he did. But the thing is, I have an absolute horror of getting anything at all on the basis of being John Darnielle. You know what I mean? Like, last time I was in Seattle... Someone tried to pay for my dinner. Why should you pay for my dinner? You shouldn't pay for my dinner. I'm, I have a good job. Right? <laughs> if you like my music, you paid for my music. You sure don't owe me any dinner or drinks. I owe you dinner or drinks, you know. And so, so I and, and I, I, you know, I, I grew up in Southern California, and I know that celebrities like they stop paying for stuff. They just go in, and somebody wants to buy Tom Cruise a drink. Why? Why should he get a free drink? He has millions of dollars. <laughs> and uh, and so, so when I go to write a book. I know that like, I have an advantage that a writer who doesn't have a band that people like doesn't have, right? I'm 100% certain there's better writers than me out there banging their heads against the wall trying to get published, you know? But they don't, you know, when they present their stuff, even an editor might go, yeah, this is great. How am I going to sell this? Who are you? What are you going to do, right? Like 33 and a third, when you pitch one now, they ask you to include a marketing plan because it's hard to sell books, right? And so, but I have an absolute, like, I, I really, from the minute somebody asked me about a book, I was like, I do not want one person to read this book and think, well, you know, see if they would have published this if you weren't that dude. What are you hoping folks get out of their experience reading Devil House? I mean, the answer for me always, first and foremost, with music and books is pleasure, right? It's like, I hope they have a good time reading it, right? I don't, I'm not didactic. Like, there is nothing worse than the just-asking-questions guy, but on the broader scale, I mean, that is what I write to pose, to, get, to let questions out into the air. I don't write to teach. Uh, it seems that a, a theme of this book is question of sort of who gets to tell stories mm-hmm. about real people. That's right. And, and I wonder, you know, with your songs, if you're telling stories about real people and if, if some of that thought about this stuff in the book also applies to the musical process as far as, do you ever feel bad? Do you ever put a real person in a scenario in your song and then you, you sort of regret it? Yes, I have. <laughs> Somebody I was having an affair with who, uh, before I got married, uh, but uh, who said, you know, that song is just straight narrative. I was like, <laughs> no one's going to know, right? And, and no one does, <laughs> but... Uh, but, uh, uh, but yeah, no, I, I used to do that a lot, actually. Um, uh, but it was usually 
as a wink to somebody, to the only other person who would know, right? Um, and and that's a little different, and it was all really heavily cloaked, you know, uh, whereas I think when you're telling a story, I mean, look, if you're sleeping with somebody you're not supposed to be sleeping with and you tell that story in some you know, Romana Clef sort of style, it doesn't matter. Nobody cares about your affair. It doesn't actually matter, right? But if you're telling a story where people actually got hurt, where people died, people's lives changed, right, in a really important way, uh, then I think the, the duty to think about what the effect of telling that story on others and letting it out into the world is going to be is an important question, right? I don't think, emphatically don't think, that that leads to any simple, and then you shouldn't, right? Or then only the following people should do that. I don't think it's like that. Um, but I think what it should do is inform your practice, right? So, Has that practice evolved for you of writing songs because of those experiences? Yeah, well, I mean... Yeah, I mean, a, a lot. I mean, the stuff I'm interested in writing about has changed over the years. Yeah, I mean, I just follow my, my heart on that, but it's like that's not, you know, I mean, I'm a middle-aged father of two now, and I'm not having any affairs. <laughs> but I don't have that stuff to draw on now. <laughs> so I suppose if I was out there doing that, I would probably want to do that still, uh, you know, but, uh, but yeah, it was, a, it was a different me who was doing that. I know you're you're somebody who you know you study literature in in college. You obviously read uh, widely. Yeah. <laughs> Do you feel like that is what's helped you be a good writer of novels? Is is just all of the other stuff that you've consumed? I think um, if I'm a good writer, it's because I am in awe of great writers, and that's who I mainly glut myself on. I mean, not glut. I actually. I doled them out sparingly, which at my age I now start to go, you should stop being so sparing with the ones you think are the best ones and read them before you die. And so, But uh, when I'm reading great stuff, I mean, I want to do that and I also know that I can't, but I sort of really, really have a strong desire to be able to stand next to the writers that I worship, you know, the ones that I just think are, are, you know, unimpeachably great. So if you pair that with the, with the fact that I also really believe that, my neck of the woods is to entertain, right? You know, the stuff I read, a lot of stuff would not be entertaining to a lot of people, right? Um, it's entertaining to people who like literary fiction, right? Um, but when I do my stuff, I want it to have that, but also be something you can read on an airplane, you know, uh, that you can read on an airplane if you're not me. <laughs> so uh, so the, the, there's a sort of a there's a hierarchical thing that I feel. I like to be a disciple, right? I like to, I like to, to stand in, beneath somebody and aspire to their condition. John Darnell, everyone. The book is Devil House. Thank you for coming out. Thanks, John. That was John Darnell, recorded at Town Hall in Seattle earlier this month. John's new book, Devil House, is available now. And the Mountain Goats, his band, are going to be on tour later this spring. Hey, special thanks this episode to Kim Williamson of Phoenix, Arizona, and Laura Frizzell of Portland, Oregon. Kim and Laura are part of the Livewire member community and are generously supporting the show with a donation each month, which is a big deal. How big of a deal, you ask, Luke? Well, I'll tell you. It's how we're able to keep doing the show each week. So you'd say it's sort of critical to the mission. So a big thanks this week to Laura and Kim for keeping Livewire going. (laughs) 
You are listening to Livewire from PRX. As we like to do each week, we asked the Livewire listeners a question because this week we have two multi-talented, multi-hyphenate guests on the show. So far, we've heard from John Darneal. The other one's coming up in a moment. We wanted to know what expertise would most people be surprised that you have. We have some responses from our listeners, which Elena has been collecting up. What are they saying? Here's one from Chris who says, my superpower is being able to know how many leftovers will fit into a Tupperware container. That is a skill, man. I don't think I've ever been right in that calculation. (laughs) (laughs) And what's amazing is I'll go in both directions of being wrong. Like sometimes it'll just be like, I put two little tiny, you know, I don't know, like uh, dolmas. You know mm-hmm. that, like, grape leaf wrapped in uh, with some rice inside it? Mm-hmm. I'll have, like, two of those in this, like, giant cavernous <laughs> Tupperware because it's, like, the only one that's clean. Or the opposite problem where it's, like, overflowing. And then I'm forced to eat more leftovers mm-hmm. so that I can fit what's left into the Tupperware. That's my tactic. It's like you mm-hmm. have to eat a whole nother meal so that you can prepare mm-hmm. the leftovers for your lunch tomorrow. Yeah, well, you have to. You you have no choice. It's the rule. And to go hank the tank on it. <laughs> what's another... Secret skill that one of our listeners have. <laughs> this one's from Scott. Scott's an expert in dog breeds, but I'm allergic to most of them. But I had a dog breed encyclopedia that I was obsessed with when I was a kid. And I still love trying to figure out what breeds various mutts and mixes are when I see them on the street. <laughs> now that one I think I'm actually pretty good at. Guessing breeds? Yes. I feel, well, what I can always see is a little touch of something in there. Oh. So it's like, oh, well, this is, there's a, there's got to be a little bit of a Bichon Frise in there. Or like when their feet are turned out, you're like, oh, Basset Hound, right? Because mm-hmm. Basset Hounds have those ballet feet. Yeah. And I, I don't know if people at the dog park are just agreeing with me, so I'll go away. <laughs> but I feel like I have a pretty high, a pretty high success rate where I at least get some part of what's going on in the genealogy of this dog, right? Okay, one more before we get out of here. I love this one from Megan. Megan says, I'm a first grade teacher now, but I spent a few years as a bartender after college and can still do a lot of the flair bartending tricks. Otherwise, there's actually a lot of overlap between tending bar and teaching first grade. (laughs) Conflict resolution, cleaning up bodily fluids, trying to make sure everyone leaves with whatever bag and jacket they brought with them, (laughs) et cetera. How have we not created a pipeline program? Yeah. <laughs> bartenders to teachers, because they, I had never thought of that, but they are probably almost perfectly equipped to deal with the classroom environment. Well, you know, my partner David is a bartender. Uh, so I wonder if I need to get him into some front of some first grade classes. He's afraid of children, but maybe he can work through that. <laughs> I feel like that would be an adorable movie premise. It's real kindergarten cop vibrations, just mm-hmm. like David. Yeah. <laughs> just plunk him down in front of a room of six-year-olds yeah. and just say, like, take care of it. What would he do? He'd play, he'd play them Nick Cave and teach him how to slam dance, probably. <laughs> they would become the coolest first graders in the history of Oregon. would be like, all right, kids, we're just going to do some pull-ups and smoke cigarettes until your parents get here. <laughs> all right, thank you to everyone who sent in an answer uh, to our question. We actually have another audience question for next week's show, uh, which is going to be our Women's History Month program. We're going to be honoring that. We'll read you that question coming up at the end of this episode. So stick around for that. You are, of course, listening to Livewire Radio. I'm Luke Burbank. That's Elena Passarello right over there. Our musical guest this week is a singer, rapper, writer, and speaker. 
uh, who's made a career out of blending genres and defying expectations. She's performed at Lollapalooza and Glastonbury. Her track, Congratulations, from the Hamilton Mixtape, has over 17 million streams, and she is also the host of the very fascinating podcast, Deeply Human. She joined us at the Alberta Rose Theater here in Portland earlier this month. Uh, Take a listen to this. It's Dessa performing her song, Jump Rope. Black turn rope calling out the same games that I played. It goes turn around and jump, touch the ground and jump. Wake up to find work and look for love, and when that rope comes round, you jump. That rope comes round, you jump, 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 jump. You sterilize the needle with a lighter and a prayer. So your empty pockets close, cut off all your hair. You train up on the mountaintop to weaponize the blood. You bring your body back to sea level to see what body does, does. And it runs, and it runs, and it runs. It was just jump broken. You try not to get hit. You try to stay in. Don't let them talk that down. It's still jump broke now. It was just jump problem. You try not to get it. You try to stay in. Don't let them talk that down. It's still jump rope now. You hope you get the fast horse, some of what you ask for. Never let a broken heart keep you from the dance floor. Have a little fun, have a little fun, fun, fun. That was great. Woo! How long have you been back doing live music in a live space? 
with yeah. people watching. With humans, with human yeah. people. I mean, I think like a lot of folks, we probably made a lot of false starts. You know, it was like, let's rebook the tour, psych. Yeah. <laughs> let's rebook the psych, you know? But, um, but now for a few months, we've had most of our shows go. So every once in a while, if there's a spike, you know, we'll call something off. But yeah, we've been back at it now for a few months. Yeah. And yeah. when you got like back doing it for the first time, did it feel natural and familiar? Was there rust? Like, what was it like getting back into that mode of performance? Um, I remember that I was like in my early twenties, I had a car, um, and I had never opened the hood and I lived in (laughs) Minnesota and the way that like a calcification will build up on a car battery is a remarkable thing. Do you know what I mean? It's like underwater. Yeah. It's like white and green and colors you didn't know were inside your car. There was a little bit of that first day back. I remember, like, you know, I was on stage with, with Aviva Jay and Joshua, uh-huh. who we just heard, and, and it was like one of us couldn't remember which direction upstage meant, and then the <laughs> other two couldn't either. <laughs> yeah. Did it come back pretty quickly after you remembered what upstage meant? We're still working. No, yeah, it did. <laughs> I mean, it, it's, it's, it feels great now. It really does, yeah. Um, this tour that you're on is called the IDES Project Tour, and uh, can you remind us, you were on a while ago on LiveWire talking about the IDES Project, but what was that exactly? Yeah, so it was kind of like depths of the pandemic, trying to figure out how to make and release art, when a lot of like the systems that one would normally adhere to didn't make sense. The templates you know, you could essentially light them on fire and throw them into the snow. And that, you know, usually a musician will make a bunch of songs, you go into a studio, you record them, and you run around until people don't want to hear them anymore, and then you repeat the rinse and repeat, you know? <laughs> um, but there was no running around to record, obviously. And I was really aware of the fact that, like, I was having deep emotional connections to fake people on Netflix series because... I believe I, those are parasocial relationships, they call them. Yes, they do. <laughs> <laughs> you just call them Roy Kent fake boyfriend, you know, whatever. Uh, but. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you were developing a strong connection to Roy Kent in, during yes. the pandemic. And, and, and how did that cause you to want to do this regular sort of practice of this IDES project? I liked the fact that you know, at night or whatever, before going to bed, that I could return to these series. There was always more to be had, you know? It was just, and it was such a winter, it was the worst, and I was like, I would like to release music in that format where after you consume some of it, you know, you hear a new song, you know that there's more to look forward to. And so instead mm. of releasing a record, I decided to do this kind of like intermittent single project, which isn't something that I'd done before because I liked the idea of something on the horizon when it felt like so much was underground. Mm-hmm. This is Live Wire Radio. We're talking to... Dessa, were you releasing the tracks on the 15th of every month? Was that? I was. <laughs> I'm yeah. trying to remember because I know we chatted about this at some point. But mm. I guess my question is, what was happening when it was like the 12th and maybe it, you weren't <laughs> feeling inspired? Like, I'm interested in this approach to creativity yeah. of, you know, they say with Saturday Night Live, like they do the show not because it's ready, but because it's 11 p.m. on yes. a Saturday. Like, yeah. did it help your creativity? Yeah, I mean, I think in some way, you know, I've always been sort of, de- I, I, I think left to my own devices, I can be kind of precious about stuff, mm. you know? Like, I can really make that last 5% of a process, mm. you know, make that last for <laughs> years. <laughs> and, so, and so, yeah, just having a strict deadline, I think, in the context in which we were all living, where everybody knew, like, yo, this isn't going to be perfect because you can't go into a mixed studio. Mm-hmm. You can't. I do feel like it actually ended up, um, I don't know, it felt like training with, you know, with a parachute running around. Is that still something that runners do? I don't know. But yeah. 
Sure. But yes, yeah, so every every month, um, you know, I, to be honest, it was just trying to name the series in a way that would help people remember when it was coming out. Uh-huh. And so I was like, what's one word that everybody knows? Ides. And then everyone was like, Ides, and I realized I had picked the wrong word. <laughs> How many Ides did you do? How many months worth of Ides? Nice round seven. Uh-huh, <laughs> sure. One of those was the song Terry Gross which you performed on the show, which is amazing. It was getting a lot of attention. Why Terry Gross and why not Lakshmi Singh? <laughs> Lakshmi Singh doesn't rhyme with a lot, man. I see. You know, um, uh, Terry Gross, I just, I think she's, I think she's boss. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 No shade Lakshmi, you know. Sure. But, also yeah. boss. Also double boss. Yeah. yeah. But mm. have you, okay, so you also, you host a podcast, Deeply Human, about to start the second season. Did you, have you picked up some hosting techniques from Terry Gross? I like the fact that Terry Gross seems to be interested in having a conversation and that she's not afraid to say, what? I don't know what that means. Or like, are you serious? You know, she just like, she doesn't seem like she has to be in the driver's seat and the burden of like omniscience isn't one that she's decided to pick up. I like that she sounds really human. So do you try to bring that to your hosting? Because you, I mean, you have this great show where you're talking about kind of behavioral science, but you're trying to get into it in a, as the name would indicate, very human way. There's been a lot of times, like, because you have to, li- well, I have to, like, listen back to my own audio. And <laughs> I can hear the moment where I try to be Terry Gross. And then I am, like, a lesser Terry Gross in part, some moments. Is that the part where Dave Davies shows up for you? <laughs> <laughs> Shots fired. Don't cut all that out. <laughs> but we know. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, and also, I mean, gosh, Terry Gross has the added benefit of being Terry Gross. So mm. I feel like when Terry Gross doesn't know something, it sounds like humble and mm-hmm. and charming. Whereas if like random lady off the street who's talking to a neuroscientist is like, oh, dude, I've never heard that word before. It's not as charming. Right. So <laughs> I feel like I have to know everything until... I have the name recognition and that I'm allowed to become ignorant. Right. <laughs> I uh... um, can, we, can we have like a, a moment here where I remove the fourth wall and become vulnerable in front of everybody? My bracelets are locked together. And I oh can't. my God. <laughs> Thank you. Can we... Can we add... That costs extra. Can we add escapist to your long (laughs) resume? Later on in the show, we're going to lower you into a tank of water upside down. (laughs) See if you can make your way out. Um, The second season of Deeply Human is coming up. What kind of uh, stuff do you get into and explore? So I got to try like an alcohol alternative that's supposed to, you know, kind of gently intoxicate by acting on the GABA receptors in your brain, but it doesn't have like a hangover or results in the kind of like tissue inflammation. That was exciting. And um, we talk about accents. I'm a language fiend. And I think a lot of us are charmed. You know, if you have a friend who can just like slay accents, I mean, that person just wins the party. Yes. Yeah. Or like if you're me, every accent I do ends up sounding like Bill Clinton. It's terrible. It is terrible. It just starts off with me trying to do like an Irish person and then pretty soon it's just like, hey, how's it going? (laughs) Like it just, it it is a one-way street to Clinton Town. Yep. Which is the opposite of slaying it at the party. That's a cul-de-sac, my guy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You also, uh, you gave this TED Talk 
Can we choose to fall out of love? It's got like over 4 million views. What were you exploring with that TED Talk? I was trying to fall out of love, man. Really? <laughs> 100%. <laughs> yes. I'd been in love with the same dude for like, I don't know, eight times as long as would have been helpful for anybody involved, you know? <laughs> And it just became sort of like an embarrassing thing. Like, braces, those are fine to have for a while, but you don't want to die with braces. <laughs> right. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I had been in love for just a, way too long. And so um, after waiting for three years and then five years and then 10 years and then 12, you know, a long time, um, I was like, man, what if I just tried to tackle this as you would any other problem? You know, you just put your hands on your hips and put your safety goggles on and work it out. And so... <laughs> I ended up like asking a few, a couple of neuroscientists if they'd be game to try a particular experimental protocol to see if we might be able to make some headway that way. Wow. Uh, do you want to talk about how that went or is that spoiling the TED Talk for people? <laughs> um, I would say that you can sort of fall out of love medium, you know? But yeah, I, I mean, the, I guess the happy story is like, I'm not in love with the dude anymore. I would need you to applaud at this point. <laughs> Um, but also, it was just like, it was such an exciting project. By the way, he's here tonight. <laughs> Jason, come on down. <laughs> um, we told you we had a surprise, Des. Okay. Um, but also, I was just like, I don't know, it was one of the most exciting projects of my life. I remember standing at the kitchen, in my kitchen, like in my apartment, and reading something that I was really excited. I was reading about uh, the, the brain of a dead Parisian woman who is anonymous in the scientific literature. It was her brain which was used to create some of the atlases. So essentially, it's like the way that we know what's in your head or in my head, like how far in to sink a needle before we get to a particular region, was based on this one brain, at least in the beginning. And I got so excited as I was researching this that I felt like I was going to vomit. And so I was like holding the edge of the sink. It was just one of the most rewarding like intellectual ventures that I'd had. And in some way, it's like loving that work enough, I mm. think, gave me something else to love, too. You know? Gotcha. All right. <laughs> That's Dessa right here on Livewire. I'm Luke Burbank. Here with Elena Passarello. We've got to take a very quick break, but don't go anywhere because we have more with Dessa right after this. Stay with us. Livewire is thrilled to be partnering with Portland's own Portal Tea this season, formerly known as Tea Chai Tay. Portal Tea is the premier tea company in the Pacific Northwest, and they make one of a kind handcrafted tea blends like cinnamon churro chai and blueberry cream earl grey use the code livewire all lowercase for 20% off at portaltea.co welcome back to livewire from prx i'm luke burbank here with elena passarello we're listening to a conversation that we recorded earlier this month at the Alberta Rose Theater with rapper, writer, and podcast host, Dessa. Take a listen. Dessa, 
Besides your musical accomplishments, you are also, as we've now been exploring, uh, the host of this podcast, Deeply Human. It takes a very personal look at neuroscience and behavioral science and things like that. As such, we were hoping we could take a moment to pick your deeply human brain and get some insights from your life. Uh, so here on the table, we have an actual physical jar. It's got five questions in it based on some of the topics from episodes of your podcast. We call this the deeply human jar of truth. Yes, thank you. Here's how this is going to work, Dessa. You will grab a question at random from the Jar of Truth. Elena Passarello will read it to you, and then we will uh, get your answer. Okay, so in your episode, The Teenage Brain, you explore why adolescence is so weird. That means we want to know, what did you believe as a teenager that you don't believe anymore? Oof, God, oh man, oh man, oh man. Um, (laughs) I imagined that walking in high heels was something that would happen naturally to you that, that at one point in your life you'd be able to do it yeah that it was just like a, a state of mastery you get breasts you move out of your house you can magically walk in high heels yeah you know what I mean licensure and, and it doesn't that didn't happen but I would also say at the risk of being totally maudlin um that yes of course there's some things that I would like that I think differently about now but I think that there were some things that she was right about that I've gotten too tired to police the same way that I used to like she was mm. right this place mm. is insane and not fair. <laughs> and I So young Dessa was actually right about a few things. What I think so. And it's just like you get you acclimate. Mm-hmm. You acclimate to outrageous conditions by mm-hmm. virtue of the fact that you don't have the metabolic energy to maintain rage. <laughs> but you do at 13, you know. So Yep. Yeah. Okay, in the episode Spooked, you investigate some of the most mystical, disorienting, and disturbing experiences that a person can have. So we want to know, what is something that scares you way more than it should? Oh, something that scares me way more than it should. Okay, there was a turn in that question because I was ready with the answer, having a nosebleed on mushrooms, but that's not the way that the question ended. Well, what, well hold yeah. on. Wait, well, hold, huh? Now, hold on. <gasps> no, you know, no, no. First, you... first thought, best thought. <laughs> Y'all had what your question, chance. What question is the answer had a nosebleed on mushrooms? What question isn't that the answer? To- yeah. Amen. Um, amen. Amen. Yeah. What scares me? I, I, would, I will say that I think, like, I've known that I've, I am high strung for a long time. Mm-hmm. I am only fully appreciating, like, how high above concert A I am wired. <laughs> the amount of, like, rumination that's expended on, like, really minor social things um, mm-hmm. is surprising and you know just like the the thing where you like replay the thing that you said the night before I think now that I'm adult and I've had a chance like trade notes with other people Mm -hmm. I'm scared of that I'm scared of of even like minor slights to other people really genuinely freak me out in a way that intellectually I know is entirely out of proportion Mm -hmm. I was wondering if you had come to any kind of insight on that because I think one of the key requirements of being a public radio listener is also having intrusive thoughts so I feel like the people hearing this can relate to sort of rumination and intrusive thoughts. And if you, in all of your sort of neurological research or yes. lived experience, if yes. you had arrived at something that helped quiet those voices, I bet you there's some people right now who would love to hear about that. I mean, I do enjoy whiskey. You know, like that, that quiets it right down for a little while. Sometimes, But okay, like example. So I'm on tour with two musicians who are like close friends of mine. 
Aviva plays harp and sings. We share a room together. And today, I can hear her laughing, and I'm already worried <laughs> that this isn't going to play well. Today, when we were coming here, she was reading a book, and I didn't want to interrupt Aviva, and I went in my makeup bag. She has a little canister of like face cream, and it was in my makeup bag. I have spent the past three hours wondering, did she put it in there, or did I put it in there and take it? Is it a gift, and should I say thank you, or did I accidentally take her stuff? Aviva, could you just say yes or no? <laughs> You didn't? Oh my God. You stole it. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Put the cuffs back on her. <laughs> sorry, Viva. Dessa, everyone. Right here on Livewire. That was Dessa, right here on Livewire, slaying it at the Jar of Truth. The uh, latest season of Dessa's podcast, Deeply Human, is available now, and you can visit dessawander.com to find out what Dessa is up to next. All right, before we get out of here, a little preview of next week's episode. We are going to be celebrating Women's History Month with filmmaker Andrea Nevins. Uh, she directed a very interesting documentary about women in stand-up comedy. It's called Hysterical. Plus, we are going to talk to writer Melissa Phoebos. She's going to talk about her new collection of essays, Girlhood, uh, which looks at the forces that shape the lives of girls uh, and the adults that they become. Then Pink Martini is going to stop by to perform a cover of the 1970s feminist anthem, I Am Woman, because what Women's History Month show would be complete without some Helen Reddy? Hmm. I'm ready for it. If you don't have Helen Reddy in the show, it's like, why are you even here doing it? All right, that's going to do it for this week's episode of the show. A huge thanks to our guests, John Darneal and Dessa. By the way, Dessa's incredible band is Joshua Holmgren and Aviva J. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines. Special thanks this week to Weir Harmon, Becky Hoffman, Stephen Weil, Candace Wilkinson-Davis, and all the other fine people over there at Town Hall in Seattle, where we talked to John Darnell. Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Heather D. Michelle is our executive director. Tim Harkins is our production director. Our producer and editor is Melanie Sevchenko. Our assistant editor is Trey Hester. And Stephanie Moore is our social media manager. Our house band is Ethan Fox Tucker, Al Alves, Alex Radakovich, and Mike Gamble. A. Walker Spring composes our music. Molly Pettit is our technical director and mixer. Our house sound is by D. Neil Blake. And our sound engineer at Town Hall was Dave Campbell. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council and the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. Livewire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. This week, we'd like to thank members Kim Williamson of Phoenix, Arizona, and Laura Frizzell of Portland, Oregon. For more information about our show or how you can listen to our podcast or get our new Best News podcast, head on over to livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank for Elena Passarello and the whole Livewire team. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Wouldn't it be amazing to have a piping hot episode of Livewire delivered 
right to your heart and ears each week? Well, guess what? That can happen when you subscribe to the Livewire podcast feed and you'll get the joy of surprising conversation every week. So go ahead and do it. It's super easy. You click on the button at the top of your podcast app and bam, you are Livewire subscribed. And if you're still, you know, feeling the love, if you're enjoying the show, hey, maybe you could hook us up and uh, leave us a quick review. That'll help more people find out about Livewire. And thank you.